Ain't no way I'm competing with this rain without a microphone. Okay, good morning. I hope you can hear me, because I barely can. Um, I'm glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 21. I just want to say quickly, if you have been fasting in some form or fashion um, over Lent, I want to encourage you. Uh, It's almost over. (laughs) And... uh, no, no matter how, how it's been for you, uh, we have one week left. So um, stay the course. If you haven't started, you can do it this week. Ain't nothing stopping you. Um, today, uh, we are sitting with um, one of the traditional texts of the church. Uh, it's the triumphant entry. Uh, it's when Jesus uh, walks into Jerusalem, and it marks the last week of his ministry. Uh, before he is crucified. Um, and so we're going to jump right in. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pray. But before we do, let me just tell you the game plan for today. <clears throat> I want to deal with the triumphant entry um, in the larger historical context uh, for the meaning of the things that we are going to read, particularly in the Jewish imagination. Okay, almost everything that we are about to read finds its root in the Old Testament, and it is pointing to a reality, Um, and it's a moment of national and historical significance for the Jews as they perceived it, and cosmic, eternal significance for you and I, Christian or not. And all the things being said that we're about to read And all of the actions happening are pointing to a reality or or a claim, really, being made primarily by Jesus. And what is the reality that everything we're about to read points to? Well, that's the point of the sermon. And I want to walk us through the Old Testament up to that point, okay? So, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 21, starting in verse 17. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Luke throws in at this 
uh, point that the Pharisees were very upset about what was being said. And, and Luke points, he, he adds to the story that the Pharisees told Jesus, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. And Jesus replied, which is now perhaps a famous sentence in your imagination if you're a Christian, he says, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. So back to Matthew, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, money changers. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, this is fantastic language, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, here's this phrase again, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, which first of all, don't you know, ever say, have you never read to a, I mean, bro's memorized, right? Of course they've read it. And yet, had they? Right? Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Let's pray that my voice <laughs> holds out. Jesus, thank you um, that we can come to a moment in history um, that actually happened. This is not fairy tales that we're reading. This is historical occurrences that we look back to and wonder at. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and help us understand what's happening in this text, Jesus. We pray that you'd have mercy on us today and that we would feel and know in our hearts you are trying to say something to us. Lord, give us ears that hear. Father, would you please save us from the fate of reading but not reading, of hearing but not hearing, seeing but not seeing. Have mercy, Jesus. And let me pray these things. Amen. So the scene starts with an almost, well, with an ironic, an almost comical move on the part of Jesus. He says, go into the city. As soon as you walk in, there's going to be two donkeys. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but apparently a colt refers to a boy donkey. Anyone else know that? I didn't know that. I was like, I thought that was a horse. Well, it is. It can be a, a baby horse or, or, a, or, I'm sorry, a boy horse or a boy donkey. And a foal means it's a baby. So, they throw their jackets on the one, so there's two. They throw their jackets on the one, and Jesus rides the other. And he's riding a donkey, and Scripture's going to tell us which one he's, he's riding. But it's not just a donkey, it's a baby donkey. <laughs> so I don't know if you've ever seen anyone riding a baby donkey. But I, I looked it up, and it's pretty funny looking. They're like eye level with you. 
Like they're not raised up at all. Like maybe even, you know, it's like a, it's like a big massive dude on a tiny circus bike or something, you know. People would have looked at this and probably thought, this is silly looking. Something's wrong here. Um, and it's ironic because almost 100 years earlier, there was a similar scene in Jerusalem. Um, people celebrated about, about 100 years earlier than this event. People celebrated in Jerusalem when another person walked into the city, not walked, rode into the city, um, presumably on a horse. He was a vic- victorious military and spiritual leader. And they took palm branches from the trees and waved them and put them down. And they were welcoming Judah Maccabee of the Maccabean Revolt. So I don't know. I mean, I, this is new for me, right? But he, the, uh, the Jews had been occupied by, I'm not going to say it wrong, Seleucid, Seleucid army. They were basically a Syrian Hellenistic army that had occupied Jerusalem for years and years and years. And Judah, they had outlawed Judaism. They had outlawed Jewish practice. And, and it's pretty, if you look it up, man, it's, it's gross. It's gross. It's grotesque, the things they did to outlaw. They set up a temple in, they set up an altar in the temple and sacrificed pigs on it. One of the, just one example of what this empire did to shame and um, refuse the Jewish people practice of their religion, right? And it gets way worse than that. But Judah Maccabee rises up. Uh, actually, his father did first, and his son finished it off. Um, their last name actually was not Maccabee. It was Mattathias. And the Hebrew people changed it to Maccabee, which means hammer. So if that tells you anything about the kind of justice that Judah Maccabee was serving to the, to the occupiers of the city, it was swift and final and definitive. He was, uh, they used guerrilla warfare to rout the army out of Jerusalem. It was very, very bloody. Um, and you can read about it. He restored Jewish independence and was hailed as a Messiah, as a, as a savior of sorts. And they waved palm branches and welcomed him into the city, right? Um, so here comes Jesus, a hundred years later, into the city, and, and something is happening in the imagination of the Jewish people. It's, it's almost like this, it's a, almost a scene repeating itself. They're saying, it's starting, they're thinking. Also find themselves, the Judah, the Judah Maccabean Empire did not last long before the uh, Romans came in and, and took over, right? About 80 years, something like that. And so here they are again, an occupied people by a foreign army, and this prophet savior type is coming into the city, right? Um, but something wasn't quite right with the picture. <laughs> this prophet savior figure coming in is not on a valiant horse stallion that, that uh, you know, shakes the ground when it approaches and strikes fear into the eyes of the infantry. He's not on a, a, a beast of, of prowess. He's on a beast of burden. He's, he's riding the animal that does the dirty work that they would never make a horse do, <laughs> right? And the Jewish imagination, they're thinking, he is going to kick Rome out. He's, he's going to do it. Right? And this, this is what they were thinking and why they welcomed him the way they welcomed him. And maybe in the frenzy and froth of the political excitement, the crowds maybe were able to overlook this one strange thing that he's riding a baby donkey. But surely it struck them as not quite right, right? So he's on this tiny donkey, eye level probably no higher than us. 
as he saunters by. You know, donkeys, they saunter, you know. They don't stride, right. And it's interesting about donkeys as well. You know, they're, they're beasts of burdens. They do the dirty work. And I didn't know this also. Donkeys also are protectors. I didn't know this. Donkeys will, uh, they will uh, put them with uh, other animals uh, for protection. Donkeys will kill uh, wolves and coyotes. And perhaps we shouldn't read too much into it. But there's something about the humility and methods of God in how exactly he intended to establish his kingdom. You see, this would be unlike any kingdom known to man, right? And it's true then and it's true now. It wouldn't be advanced by military force or political power. Jesus, guys, does not entice by power or wealth or pride, but rather in love, self-sacrifice, and humility. Now check this out. Of all the figures in history, Napoleon Bonaparte, right, the great French military and political leader of the early 1800s, seemed to see and acknowledge this thing about Jesus. I'm going to read you a quote from Napoleon. He said this, I know men, and I can tell you that Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires, the gods of other religions. He says, that resemblance does not exist. He says, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. It was not a day or a battle which achieved the triumph of the Christian religion in the world. At large now he's talking. No, it was a long war, a contest of three centuries, began by the apostles, then continued by the flood of Christian generations. In this war, all the kings and potentates of the earth were on one side, and on the other, I see no army, but a mysterious force. His gospel, his apparition, his empire, his march across the ages and the realms, everything is for me a prodigy, a mystery insoluble, which plunges me into a reverie from which I cannot escape, a mystery which is before my eyes, there a mystery which I can neither deny nor explain. Come on, Napoleon, right? We don't write like that no more. So the Roman occupation had the Jews in eager expectation that a Messiah was coming, but their hopes was nothing along the lines of what Jesus was actually doing. Their hopes was that they would be delivered by Rome. And I'm going to prove it to you in Scripture, right? If you're like, this isn't the Bible. It is. Luke 3.15 says, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, right? So the people, there's an expectation in the Jewish society, in their culture at large, that a Messiah is gonna come and deliver us from Rome, from military occupation, right? But what they wanted was a military leader, a Messiah who thought like they thought, who judged like they judged, and who rendered the form of justice that they thought just. 
And we do the same today, right? We try to force fit Jesus into saving us from evils we see as most oppressive, which, oddly enough, always end up being someone else. We very rarely see the freedom Jesus came to give us as freedom from our own oppression of our own sin, but most often try to project that on some form in society, some political structure, some educational structure, right? Can I just say to you, no one has enslaved or oppressed you to the degree of which your own sins have enslaved and oppressed you. And no amount of external issue, whatever it may be, will ever be as oppressive and enslaving as that of sin. The thing about being a slave to sin is it's us who have given the keys away. So written some 600 odd years before this event, y'all, is this cryptic messianic prophecy that had to confound the Jewish people for years and years and years. And it comes out of Zechariah. And it says this, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. The disciples realize this as they're writing the gospels. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 600 years before this is written. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, y'all. In fact, this move by Jesus is reflective of a clear shift in Jesus's ministry. Stay with me. If you read the Gospels closely, what you're going to notice is the first half of Jesus' ministry, he's telling people to shut up about it. Have you ever noticed this and thought it was really strange? Like, for example, Luke 5.14, he heals a leper, and he says, now don't tell anyone. Go on, right? Matthew 8.4, Luke 8.56, all are examples of Jesus doing something and saying, shh, shh, don't tell anybody. In fact, in Matthew 16, 20, he tells his disciples, strictly is the word, tell no one, I am the Messiah. And you're reading this thing in Jesus. What are you doing? Aren't we trying to start a religion, right? I mean, this is like all the PR people in the room, which like everyone is because of Instagram now, right? We're like, dude, we could have instant this, right? We could have healed it. We could have got that on the social. Everyone would have known. Let's get this thing rolling. Let's get this going, you know? Missed an opportunity, right? But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because he knew that the more people who realized who he really was, that his time would be limited. There was one inevitable outcome that Jesus knew would happen when more people knew what was going on. And we see this in Matthew 16, 20, verses 21. He says, he gave the disciples strict orders that they were to tell no one that he was the Christ. Something else happens here. He says, from that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary For him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and to be killed and raised again on the third day. So those two things were connected, right? The the visibility of his ministry and him dying. He knew that. So for the first first half, he's like, I got stuff to do, y'all. I got things to say. So shh, shh, shh. And then something remarkable happens in his ministry, right? And in fact, in several places, he says, my time has not yet come when people start saying that kind of stuff. And then then Matthew says, so anyway, we'll go on. And then in Matthew 17, verses 22, Jesus said, something happens. He says, 
He says, the son of man's about to be delivered into the hands of men. In Luke 9, 51, he says, when the, day, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. He was determined, fixed his face. He resolved. So something happens, and Jesus knows it's time. He fixes his face towards Jerusalem. And as if his ministry wasn't confrontational already, right, as if he wasn't already stirring up stuff, he ratchets up the pressure. He pushes the issue, especially in the book of Matthew, which we'll see in a second. So the people are shouting something. In fact, the whole scene is so disruptive, it says the whole city, Jerusalem, is stirred up. But it's what the people are shouting that sets off the religious leaders. It seems to be exactly what they're saying that prompts the religious leaders to say, "Mm -mm -mm, this is going too far. You need to tell them to shh, right? Why? Why were the religious leaders upset about what was being said? Well, there's two options we have, two possibilities, I would say, right? First is this. It could be the, relig the, the, the religious leaders said, listen, Rome is watching right now. And if you guys keep this up, they're going to squash us because if they sense any kind of rebellion, it will not go well with us. So you better, shh, that's possible. It could be the volume of that. But it, think, it becomes clear that it was not the volume of the crowd, it was specifically what they were saying, right? So if you remember in Acts 19, something similar happens. The clerk stands up and says, if we keep this up, Rome's gonna squash us. We're gonna be in trouble of rebellion. So y'all better, sh sh same kind of reasoning happens. So it could be that. It seems, however, that it's the content of what they're saying. The, the crowds are quoting a psalm, but they're adding something that's not in the psalm, Okay. At the top of their lungs, it says the word is crazo, which means like crazy, right? They're just screaming it, shrieking it at the top of their lungs, saying, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us now. Do it. That's what Hosanna, do it. Save us right now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that's, that's Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name. But they're adding something else. They're saying, save us now, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you grew up in church, you're like, Jesus wasn't David's son. He was Joseph's son. You're right. You're right. He wasn't David's son. You went to Sunday school. Right. That's right. They are referring to an almost innumerable swath of prophecies in the Old Testament that said, when Messiah comes, he will be of David's lineage. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, you're going to see this prophecy. It's just there's so many. I mean, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 23, just to scratch the surface. They knew that whoever would come to redeem them, to save them, remember, they're thinking from Rome, would be a son of David, from the line of David. They are declaring something by calling him this. If you remember, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 12, he's healing people, and the question on everyone's mind is, could this be the son of David? See, they're not calling into question whether he was Joseph's son or David's son, right? Because remember, the timing of the pregnancy was a little weird anyway. You know, they're all like, oh, I don't know, get him in there. You know, that's not what they're doing, right? They're saying, is this guy the Messiah? That's the, the weight of that phrase, son of David. So when anyone ever calls Jesus son of David, they're making a declaration. They're saying, you are the one. Heal me. You're going to see that in the, in the New Testament. You're going to see that in the, in the Gospels. Someone who wants to be healed is going to say, son of David, have mercy on me. He's declaring something. It's a faith statement. They're saying, you're the one. 
You're the Messiah. You're the guy all the prophecies are about. Save us now. Do it. Kick the Romans out. So that's exactly what they're saying. And the leaders say, you need to rebuke them, which Jesus says, you know, if they don't declare it, the rocks will cry out. You know what I mean? So, so hold on. Let's think about this. So before, when someone said, you're the Christ, he said, shh, 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 shh. And now when someone says it and the Pharisees say, hey, you need to be shushing them, he says, if they don't say it, creation will say it. <laughs> we talk about gutsy, man. Like he is just ratcheting up the pressure on these guys. He is forcing the issue. And there's a clear shift in his ministry, man. It's just like this razor sharp, love it, right? So the whole city's in an uproar, right? Jesus at the center of it all. And the first thing he does is go to the temple. I mean, right? If, if that wasn't enough to set them off, he just walks into their home and starts flipping over tables, right? So I don't know about you. I love this Jesus, right? Like maybe, maybe you're like, oh, I like, my, I like baby Jesus, right? My, meek and mild. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like Jesus, like veins ripping out of it, just flipping over stuff, you know? Like that's the kind of Jesus, you know, I kind of want to be that Jesus sometimes, right? He's like, he's like a rock star Jesus, right? Superhero, you know, purging the, you know, whatever. I see him doing this. I see like veins popping out of his forehead and his arms and stuff like that, right? I mean, Jesus comes in and just sticks it to the man, right? Like what red-blooded American doesn't love this Jesus, you know? And I love church, right? I love church. I get, I'm good with church. I'm going to say this, though. I have had times in my life where I wanted to walk in the church and flip over a table. Amen. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? I've had times, I've had seasons in my heart and life where I'm like, the whole thing is broken, right? <laughs> Nothing works, right? It's all, burn it to the ground, right? And it's just me, right? And, and really, all I'm, all, what I, and, and looking back on those seasons, I realized I, I was very angsty, you know, as that young 20-something. And a lot of times, <laughs> I'm going to put a little finger on you. A lot of times, that's a little bit more of a reflection of some adolescent angst in you <laughs> than it is the fact that the church is broken, like, big surprise, huh? I just, it just like boggled your mind. The church is broken. What's the church made of, yo? It's made of people. You ain't broken. I ain't broken. Maybe you find some brokenness, you're going to come on, flip over a table because you're not perfect, right? Let me say this to you. A lot of us get in a bad way when we take on this role of authority over the church. Look at me. You ain't Jesus. All right? And as much as I want to give full vent to my frustrations, Huh? which are often, like I said, adolescent frustrations that are really reflective of my lack of patience and, van and, and uh, naivety, and it is God's righteousness, right? You are called to extend mercy of God, not the wrath of God. If you take on that role, you are, you're going to get in a bad way. Huh? You listen to me? You're going to get in a bad way if you take on that role. Jesus, look at me, I'm not done talking to you. Jesus is the only one qualified to step into his house and flip over tables Amen. and to do it in an unbiased, righteous way, not you. You know the only place that you have authority to flip over tables? In your own heart. That's, that's where you have authority to flip over tables. But everyone seems to think everything's fine there. So I'm going to find somewhere else I can flip over some tables, huh? All right, the evil's out there, right? It's in the church. It's in the Christians. It's, I'm going to go flip over tables there. Okay, okay, let's get back to the notes. Jesus says to them, my house is a house of prayer, and you've made it a, a den of thieves. He is quoting, how about this, Isaiah 56. 
If you look at Isaiah 56, do you know what the heading over uh, the chapter, at least in the ESV, is? The heading of the chapter over Isaiah 56 is salvation to foreigners. And the, the extent of that quote is, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So first of all, Jesus is saying, you've turned God into a means of profit. That's the den of robbers. And then secondly, you have not invited outsiders in. So what's interesting to me, after this event, where Jesus flips over tables, they confront him, obviously. You don't come in my house, flip over tables, right? Basically say to him, who do you think you are? Don't even answer the question, really. He starts telling them parables, which we didn't read. One of the parables that he tells in this event is the parables of the tenants and the vineyard. And it says in 45, that the, and if you're not familiar with that, go read it. Because it says in 45, the Pharisees knew he was speaking the parable against them. And at the end, he says in 2142, have you never read, again, slap in the face, <laughs> the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. It's so interesting, y'all. This is, I mean, the, if you're, the Bible's ridiculous. He's quoting the exact same psalm that they were shouting earlier. That's from Psalm 118 as if to affirm their claims. Let me read you the entire section of Psalm 18 that's quoted in this whole scene. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Psalm 18, 22 to 26. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in this. And here it is. Save us, O Lord. That's Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of David. So where before... We see Jesus saying, hey, don't tell anyone. Now he's openly pushing the issue. Jesus is making his claims, his claims abundantly clear. I am the Messiah, right? They're right, right? I am the one riding on a baby donkey. I am the one endowed with salvation. I am the son of David. Not only that, I'm the cornerstone. Not only that, I'm the cornerstone that you're rejecting. It is no, I mean, it's just, Super clear why they killed the dude. I mean, it's abundantly clear, right? So if you still have doubts about what I'm saying, about what he's doing, how he's turning up the heat, how he's forcing the issue, just, just read the rest of Matthew, okay? In Matthew 23, <laughs> is the chapter just full of warm and fuzzies, okay, uh, to the religious leaders, let me just give you a taste of what Jesus says to the religious leaders in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. <laughs> Which, oddly enough, Jesus made that term. You know that? He came up with that. He's, that's a, that's a, it means actor. It, means, it now has religious connotation because Jesus used the word actor to religious people. He said, you're an actor on a stage, bro. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's face, and you don't enter, and you don't let other people go in. 15, he says, woe to you. He says it again. He says, you guys travel across land and sea to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much as hell as you. <laughs> what? It's crazy, man. Let me give you some more. He calls them 
blind guides. He says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. (laughs) I mean, it's like, he's just unloading on these guys. You're outwardly beautiful, but inwardly you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then he just drops this bomb, all right? If you don't, I mean, 30 and 32, he says this. You say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in them with shedding the blood of the prophets. So he says this. Thus, you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then I just imagine he looks him right in the eye and says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You know what he's saying? Kill me. I'm here. I mean, gutsy, man. I just, you can't read this stuff without being like, what? These dudes are like the mafia of the first century, right? And he looks at him in the eyes and says, Fill up the measure of your fathers. I'm here, right? He brings them and he brings us to the same confrontational and cosmically unavoidable decision when it comes to who Jesus is. He's forcing the issue. He brings it to a head. All of this, the donkey, the crowds, the parables, Jesus' whole ministry really confronts you and me with a choice in which Jesus says to you personally, and this is what Tim Keller says, either you crown me king or you crucify me. That is exactly what he's doing in Jerusalem. You crown me or you crucify me. That's it. And that's what we get to decide today too. There's no middle ground with the Son of God. Either he is king of the universe or insane or a liar or a charlatan. But what he's not is your little life coach. He's not here to give you advice. He says, crown me or crucify me. As one writer puts it, I don't do this intentionally. I saw you smiling. I was like, he knows. I don't do this intentionally, guys. All right. But he just has a way. C.S. Lewis says this. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus isn't your life coach. 
He's not here to give you some suggestions so you can win friends and influence people. And I'm not honestly sure how much he will engage you and heal and redeem if you treat him like garnish on the plate of an already full life. It is not surprising to me when people feel the Bible is dead, prayer is useless, and worship is boring, right? When you think Jesus came to give you advice and not salvation. See, when we think of Jesus in different terms than he gave us himself, we start treating him like an amenity. You know what an amenity is? It's something nice but not essential. We amenitize the Son of God. Something, an amenity is something pleasant but not necessary. You got a hot tub? That's nice when you have a hot tub. You know, it would be nice to have a hot tub. We turn Jesus into a consumer product and make him about us instead of our lives about him. We invite him into our kingdom instead of submitting to his. We turn the lion of Judah into a domesticated cat and say, you can stay as long as you don't mess things up. Thus, we begin to treat him like a pair of shoes that we wear when we're in the mood. Instead of clinging to him with all of our might, like you'd cling to an oak tree in a tornado. Instead of clinging to him with all of our might, like you'd cling to a raft lost at sea. Jesus pushed the issue with them, and he's pushing it with you right now. You have two options. You either crown him king or you crucify him. And whether or not you want to admit it, we make this decision every day with our actions, thoughts, and behavior. Yes, there is a process. Yes, there is a journey. But in the end, you will do one of two things. You will either crown him or crucify him. And the reality is, what the Bible tells us is all of us have participated in his crucifixion that our rebellion and sin has made us not innocent bystanders, but rather active participants in his death. And despite our ignorance and sin, and despite our love of darkness, what does he speak from the depth of his agony? Does he call down judgment and wrath from the cross? Does he sneer and blame and condemn like only he could? No. He speaks mercy over your heart, and he declares forgiveness for the deeds done in the love of darkness. What does he say from the depths of his agony? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone like him. Amen. Praise him. <laughs> Statistically speaking, there surely was overlap in the crowd who cried, Hosanna, save us, and who cried, crucify him. And from this side of history, with all of the facts before us, the decision is the same. Will we, with the accumulation of your whole being, with all of your thoughts and attitudes and action, cry out, crucify? Or will you bow at his feet and crown him Lord of creation and of your own life as well. These are your options. There is no in-between. Lukewarm, we see, Jesus had no tolerance for. 
The lukewarm thing that we see rampant in Christian culture, in my opinion, is a byproduct of when Christianity has become culturally accepted as a norm. But we don't see this in scripture. We see Jesus saying, I can't do anything with lukewarm water. Either you crown me king or submit to my liberating, loving rule in your life, or you demand to maintain your own kingdom. Then the only thing you can do with Jesus at that point is to crucify him. But the one thing we must not do is demand he comes to us on our own terms and in our own way. Either he is king or you are king. Those are your two eternal options. Either we say to him, thy will be done, and we enter into life, or we insist on our will being done and stay in death. Let's stand and pray.